I want you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis 6. We're continuing, of course, our study of the book of beginnings. And in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, that's that first section, there's the history of the world, sort of its beginning. We move to chapter 6, and we see begin seeing one of the most famous events, and that's the flood. And some people deny that there was a flood, but in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, we see that God brought judgment upon the world through a worldwide flood. In this passage, we're going to find the reason for the flood. Why did God bring judgment on the world? We read this, the wickedness of man was great upon the earth. Earth. The thoughts of man were continually evil. And so the theme really of this entire little section is the wickedness of man and how God dealt with it. The response, of course, of God is twofold, and you see it in this whole passage. I'm going I'm to put this thing down just in case that might be somebody's way. But uh, you see, it's the twofold thing is God's judgment and God's grace. That's what we're going to see in this little section, the judgment of God and the grace of God. So we see that the world, in a sense, is going to be judged, but there's Noah who finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. So there's a lot there. Let's, let's uh, begin with prayer, and then we'll get right into the passage. There's some hard things there. Heavenly Father, what a great night. Thank you again for the privilege of coming together with fellow believers and studying the Bible. Thank you for your truths to us. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Genesis, which is really a tremendous book, Lord. We just love it, the, the things that you put in there that helps us to understand the, the whole idea of the beginnings and the fall and the, the salvation and the flood and, and all of these different things and these great people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the stuff that's there. Help us to really learn from the book of Genesis as we study it uh, over this next period of time. It'll take us to go through it. So thank you for the fun that we have. Lord, we just ask you tonight as we study a really hard section or a section that's just hard to grasp and understand and to see how it fits that you would teach us, Lord, and we thank you, Lord, for that privilege. Teach us now. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two sort of major views on end-time events in the sense that how things are going to play out. There's some who believe, and, and I'm not even talking about different ways like whether it's literal or not literal or not, but there's some who think that things ultimately, as the world goes by, will just sort of get better and better and better, and that Christians will take the message to the world, and that's our job, and we're going to Christianize the world, and people will believe, and things will get better and better, and then Jesus returns. That's a view. Another view is that the end times will not get better, but they'll actually get worse and worse. And the message as a whole is that when, when the word of God is given out and Jesus Christ is proclaimed, more and more rejection by the fallen world system, wickedness becomes greater and greater. Then Jesus Christ returns to judge and to rule. Which is true? Which seems to fit the scripture? Well, Jesus gave us the information, Matthew 24, 25. We talked a little bit about it this morning. And he talked about end time events. And he says this, as it was in the days of Noah... So shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And so one of the things we're going to see is what was it like? What was it like at the time of Noah? And what was characterizing the world then? Was it getting better and better? Was it getting worse and worse? And that will tie into what it's going to be like at the very end. Well, this evening we get a picture of what things were like in the days of Noah. God gives us this brief description of the world just before we judge the world with the flood. And the key statement that we see is the wickedness of man was great on the earth. There are some that teach that man is basically good. And with the right circumstances and the right environment, crime and sin would be eliminated. The Bible teaches that there's none righteous, no, not one, that all have gone astray, and every person dwells no good thing. And this evening in Genesis chapter 6, we see the world as it was in the days of Noah. Wickedness was great. We'll see how that ties together. Let's get a brief review of where we are and what we've seen in our study. Remember, Genesis is a powerful book. 
God reveals the creation of the world and man and the beginning and all of that. You can take the book of Genesis, and I just want to give a brief review, and you can look at it in two ways. You can see it's two big sections, chapters 1 through 11. We get four big events. Chapters 12 through 50, it deals with four special people. So you can take the book of Genesis and say chapters 1 through 11, big events. Chapters 15 through uh, 12 through 50, uh, 50, four special people. Let's think about the first from the four big events. The creation, the fall, the flood, and the division of the nations. That's those four key events. We've seen the creation. We've seen the fall. We're now moving into the third one, which is the flood. When you go from chapter 12 to 50, you see four key people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And, and we'll see those as we go through. In fact, as we study those passages, it's pretty, pretty amazing to watch those men and what their lives were like and how God dealt with all of them. In our study, we've seen the creation, the fall. Now we're moving to the flood. In summary, God created the heavens and the earth in six days. And everything, he created man the woman. But created the woman out of the man, placed him in a garden with instructions to take care of it. Eat all the tree, but you couldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they ate from that, they would not only die physically, but die spiritually. Actually, they'd die spiritually, and then the result would be physical death. They were tempted by the devil, who came in the form of a serpent. They fell, they ran, and they hid. God found them, and in his grace and mercy, he made a provision for them. He said that there would be a seed of woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. They believed he, he gave them basically a substitute, and he killed an animal and covered up their sin. And uh, it was very powerful, but they were removed from the garden. We've been seeing in chapter 4 and chapter 5 offspring, those who followed God, those who didn't follow God. Some people say that from Adam and Eve through, uh, through Seth, you have believers, and from Cain, you don't. need. But you can't always say that. We can see that there were unbelievers through Cain, but to say that Cain wasn't a believer, we don't know that. We just can see that there are two, at least two lines of people going, those who seemed to believe God and called upon the name of the Lord and those who didn't. As we move into chapter 6, we focus on a man that was introduced in chapter Chapter 5, and it's Noah, and we see that in verses 28, 29, and then 32. Look at 28. It says, Lamech lived 182 years, and he became the father of a son. Now he named his son Noah. Now that's the first mention we get of him, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord cursed. And so the name Noah, and Noah has that idea of the, of the rest that's coming. Then he goes on to say uh, in verse 32, Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem and Ham and Japheth. So at the end of chapter 5, that's what we saw. We learned about this man named Noah. We saw who he was, and we saw his family in that sense. The next three chapters are going to deal with a big event, and that's chapter 6, 7, and 8, and it deals with the flood. And this evening, we're going to get a little background. Why would God bring a flood? And when we study it, and we're going to see it in the next two to three to four weeks, was it a worldwide flood? I mean, there are people who say, no, 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 no. They lived in this little area, and God just told them that to scare them, and it flood came in there and killed all these people in here. But it wasn't a worldwide flood. And some people say that. But we'll read it when we read the passages, when we study it. Does God say it was a worldwide flood? Did he say he was going to kill everyone? Did he say, hi, hi, the waters rose? Did they ro- I mean, was it over all the mountains? Was it over the whole earth? Did everything that had the breath of life die? Or just some, just some in that little valley, you might say. We'll talk about it as we get to that. There's three divisions of chapter 6 that we're going to look at. In verses 1 through 7, he gives the reason for the flood. In verses 8 through 12, we see Noah and his family. And then in verses 13 through 22, we see the building of the ark. Now tonight, we're going to look at 1 through 8. We're just actually going to touch on 8. 1 through 7 is what we're digging tonight. And then 8, kind of in, you know, we get a little in there where it says, And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So as we we look at that, now let let me give you tonight's passage, okay? Verses 1 through 4, special offspring. Giants on the earth. We're going to talk about this. 
And we'll spend a little bit of time on this. And if we get to the end, you want to raise some questions, we'll talk about it. But this is the part that I was telling you that that a lot of people have looked at this. A lot of scholars, Hebrew, everything. I mean, they look at it and they go, "What is this? Well, who are sons of God and daughters of men? And who are these Nephilim? And who are these giants, men of renown? And how did this happen? And what happened? And is it just regular people or not regular people? Is it something? What could it be? And we'll talk about it as we look at that. Then in verses 5, 6, and 7, he's, we talk about the wickedness of man and God's response and judgment. And then we see Noah, God's response and grace. So you see the judgment of God and the grace of God. It's very powerful. As we begin, let's let, let, we're going to see something about these special offspring. And I, I'll be honest with you, when I was at Dallas Seminary, now I I have, you know, when you study a passage, you look at it, you go back to the original language, go back to Hebrew, you do everything, you look at it the best you can, and you try to fit it together. And and there's, I think that there's a good way to take this passage. Throughout history, we're going to find that there have been three views on how to take these first four verses. I'll give you all three views, and I'll tell you why I take the one I take, and we'll see how it fits together. So let's start this. Uh, some scholars say this is the most difficult passage in the book of Genesis. And some say not only is it the most difficult passage, it may be the most difficult passage not just in Genesis, but maybe in the Old, Old Testament, because nobody really can say, oh, this is what this means. But we'll look at it, okay? Verses 1 and 2 begins this way, six, chapter 6, verse 1. Now, it came about, when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. And you look at that, you say, well, why, why is it? It's kind of strange to say daughters of men and sons of God, and, and who are these, and, and what does it mean took wives, and how does that fit, and, and, and so what exactly does that mean? Well, it says that when men began to spread upon the face of the earth, daughters were born to them. Well, they had sons and daughters. Why is the emphasis on daughters? Why didn't they just say children were born to them? And people liked each other and said, I like you and I like you and let's get married. I mean, why Why didn't they just say something like that? What's the deal? Why does it say daughters were born to them? Why is the emphasis on women? And then who were these sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful? Well, what about the sons of men? Why aren't they listed? Who were the sons of men? Is, did they only have daughters? We know they had more than daughters. I mean, why is this listed this way? It says daughters were born to them. Well, they had sons and daughters, but the emphasis is on the daughters. Why? Well, look what the verse says. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Now, what in the world does this mean? There are three views. Let me give you the three views, okay? Here's the first one. That the sons of God were believers. That it was a, a way to say, and the sons of God who were believing people saw the daughters of men, and I think we've got here that daughters of men are the unbelievers. And so some people say that this passage is saying that there were people on earth, and there were believing people and unbelieving people, and we're going to call believing people sons of God, and we're going to call unbelieving people daughters of men. What about unbelieving men? Because he's saying daughters of men. Why didn't he say sons and daughters of men and sons and daughters of God? Why wouldn't he say it that way? It's, I mean, it's kind of mixed up, but people say it just means that the sons of God were believers and the daughters of men were unbelievers. And so what happened is believers were marrying unbelievers. And that was bad. And God was going to deal with that. Notice he goes on to say, verse 3 and 4, we'll just talk it real quickly. It says, Then the Lord said... 
when he saw this, My spirit will not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days will be 120 years. Now, let me let you understand something. All he's saying in that verse, and we'll come back to it later, he's saying, I'm going to give him 120 years, and then I'm going to bring judgment. That's what he means by the 120 years. He doesn't mean that all people were going to live 120 years. Okay? But then the next verse is the one that bothers everybody. Because it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore, it really says, bore to them. They had children. They were mighty men who were of old men of renown. It seems to say that when the sons of God came together with the daughters of men, they produced these offspring, sometimes called Nephilim, which the word Nephilim means giants. It means huge, big giants. It has an idea of, um, uh, let me see if there's a, another little aspect. It has that idea of, of, of powerful. Uh, it says that suddenly they had these children who were mighty men of old, men of renown. They became famous, big people. Okay? And so people say, okay, here's what this means. Uh, somehow unbelievers and believers married. God wasn't happy about it. But in their offspring, they had famous people. But Nephilim doesn't mean famous. It means giants. I mean, it's all like big people. Uh, you can almost picture Hercules, Ajax, the mighty men of renown that you hear in, in uh, mythology and things like that. So what is this? So first view is unbelievers... And believers got married, and God wasn't happy about that. So he said, I'm going to do something in about 120 years if this doesn't correct. And they had famous offspring. That's, that's one view, okay? There's a second view, which is the sons of God were noble men, kings, powerful men. And it says, it says these, these, let me get back to the right page. The sons of God saw the daughters of men. So these noble men, these powerful leaders, these kings saw the daughters of men and they took them. And people say that what they were doing is polygamy. So these powerful men would come and they would get three, four, five, six wives. They would saw these daughters of men and they said, we're sons of God because we're famous and powerful and we're kings. We're going to take a bunch of these women. And so the problem there was polygamy, that they were going after after more than one woman. It's not a, a, a saved or an unsaved. It's just that God was upset because it was polygamy. But here's the question. What about these offspring that are called giants? What are they? Who are they? That takes us to the third view, which is the strangest view of all, which I think is the right view. Anyway, but let's look at it first. Here's the third view, that the sons of God are angels and the daughters of men are humans. And already you go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean talk about angels and people. Angels and people. Yes. That the best, well, I'll show you why I would think this in just a minute. The third view is that the sons of God were angels who came and mated, had sexual relations with people. When it says, now I want you to notice, when it says the sons of God, let's look at this view. This view is sons of God, angels, saw the daughters of men, humans, they saw they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves. Now I want you to know that the Hebrew there, took wives, is not the word to marry. It's the word just to take, to grasp, to take a hold of. And so the other view is these angels came and took human women and grabbed them and took them. And God says, that isn't right. You got 120 years, basically. And then explains that the Nephilim, the giants, were the offspring 
of angel people together. Now you're going to say, angel and people don't go together. I know that doesn't go together. Okay? But I've got some more things to think about in just a minute, and we'll talk about it. But bottom line, the third view is that angels had relationships with people. God says that's wrong because it's going to pollute the human race. And that they had offspring of mighty people, which you'd say is like half angel, half man. Where did the mythology of the Hercules and the Ajax and these mighty people who were so strong that they would just defeat thousands of people and all that, where does all that come from? I mean, that, some people say it came from this. It came from a time in which there were giants on the earth that were offspring. Who knows? Now, even though the third view is the weirdest, because the first view is a believer and an unbeliever, but it, you can't figure out the giants. The second view is noblemen and polygamy, and you still don't have the giants. The third one is angels and humans. Now, let me tell you why I hold to the third view. And there's three things. Number one, the title sons of God in the Old Testament is used only of angels. It's found in Job 1.6, and also Psalm 21.9. The term sons of God is a title for angels. Okay, you understand that? Now, what I'm trying to tell you is in every place in the Old Testament, if we're going to make the exception, the only exception is Genesis 6. Every other place that sons of God is used, it's referring to angels. So if we say that fits, then sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 are angels. Okay? These would be fallen angels, by the way. Number two, it explains the Nephilim. It explains the only possible way that you have these giants, these offspring, this union of half angel, half human. You'd say, well, angels don't marry. No, they don't marry. You'd say angels are sexless. The Bible really doesn't say angels are sexless. In fact, every pronoun connected with an angel is always masculine. Always. And... It, you could say that the Nephilim were the offspring of these angels and people. That takes us to a third thing. And that there's a New Testament reference to this event. I want you to turn to the book of Jude. Go all the way to the back of the Bible, almost to the book of Revelation. And I want you to see the book of Jude. Now, the book of Jude is sort of a unique book. He deals with a, it's, it's very short, it's only 25 verses, deals with a number of things. But in verses 6 and 7, there's not a, it's not but one chapter, so you can't, you know, you don't say chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, because it's only one chapter, so you say verses 6 and 7. I want you to see this reference to some angels and what they did and what happened, okay? And, and, and it's kind of weird, okay? And we'll see how this fits together. Jude 6 and 7 is talking about on a judgment on some angels. In fact, in Jude, he gives three different stories of how God judged things in the Old Testament. Well, here's one. Look at verse 6. And angels. He's talking about angels. He wants to remind you about angels. And he starts and talks about how that people came out of Egypt and, and after they believed, believed and came out of Egypt, but they were destroyed. They were just died in the wilderness because God judged them. And then he said, and angels. Who did not keep their own domain, we'll talk about it in just a second, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they indulged in the same way as these, as who? 
As who? These angels. Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way indulged in gross immorality as these and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in ungoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, let me tell you what most believe Jude is talking about. In Jude verse 6, he talks about some angels that God judged that he has actually taken and put them in a place. Notice it says, they are kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. That place we find also goes over to Second Peter. Second Peter deals with the same passage, and he says that angels are kept in a place called Tartarus, which means a holding cell. There are some angels from the book of Second Peter and the book of Jude. There are some angels who did something wrong. We don't know exactly. And they are placed in a special holding place waiting for judgment from God. That's what we know from Jude and Second Peter. What did these angels do that God said, I'm taking these angels and I'm putting them in this holding place? Verse 7 says, well, Sodom and Gomorrah and cities around them, they in the same way as these, these angels, the people in Sodom and Gomorrah did something like the angels. What was the issue in Sodom and Gomorrah? May know? What is it? What kind of immorality? Homosexuality. That's what it was. We're not politically correct here. Homosexuality was the problem in Sodom and Gomorrah. And notice what it says. In the same way they went after strange flesh. For a human being, strange flesh is a man with a man and a woman with a woman. For an angel, it says the angels did the same thing. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah did the same thing. They went after strange flesh. What would be strange flesh for the angel? People. That's what others say. Now, let me just tell you. So the, 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 the best thing that you can see... And you can take this any way you want to. And I'm spending a long time on this, but it's powerful, and I think you need to understand it. It seems to say that some angels came to the earth, sons of God, angels, came and took human people, had sexual relations with them, produced these big offsprings, these giant people, and God judged these angels, took them, placed them in that place because they went after strange flesh. And then he says, and just the same way Sodom and Gomorrah did the same thing as these angels, they went after strange flesh in Sodom and Gomorrah, just like these angels went after strange flesh. That's the best that we can see. They left. When notice it says in verse 6, and the angels who did not keep their own domain. The word domain means their proper station, their proper place, the proper thing they're supposed to do. So the best, the best that we can say that these angels went after strange flesh, which would be humans, and produced an offspring. Now, listen to this. There is a book that was written about 100 to 200 years before Christ was born. It's called the Book of Enoch. It's not Enoch, who is our Enoch, but it's called the Book of Enoch. And in the Book of Enoch, it says this. Angels saw beautiful human women and said, Let us take them for ourselves. And there was the production of this offspring of giants. So the Book of Enoch even talks about angels going after women in Greek mythology you have gods coming after earth human women you have all these different weird things coming after people and so what what we find is that uh, uh, this event could have happened now let me go back go all the way back to uh, the book of Genesis Genesis chapter 6 the three views 
believers with unbelievers, kings with many wives, or angels with humans. If you take the third view, why would angels do this? What kind of angels were they? Good angels? Bad angels. Why would they do this? Why would an angel try to produce offspring that were half angels, half humans? Why would they do this? Do what? Exactly. Pollute the human race. Because, see, if you, if you destroy the human race, how's the Messiah going to come save human beings if there's no true human beings? Jesus has got to be born of a virgin. He's got to be born a human. But if you pollute the whole human race, half angels, half people, that's what you're going to have. That's what some people believe. It is a plot by Satan to stop the Messiah from coming into the world. Some say that. I just want you to see that. It's a hard passage. The way I take it, and I'm being honest, I take it as angels because of Jude, verses 6. I'll get questions later. Is that okay? I'll get Jude, verses 6 and 7, Second Peter, Genesis, sons of God, Nephilim, how it all fits together. I know it's weird, and most people say, that doesn't sound right. Well, none of these others sound right either. Okay? So uh, you can take it whatever you want. I'm taking it as angels had sex with human beings to pollute the race. That's one of the reasons I I think that God says, I've got to deal with this. You ever realize that he starts over with eight people? With only eight people. Okay. It's powerful stuff. Okay. The giants, Nephilim. uh, Literally, Nephilim can mean fallen ones, by the way. It means giant fallen ones. That's what it means. So we'll, we'll see it some. Mother time. The Nephilim is used in a few other places in Scripture. It always means some kind of giant thing. Verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Here's what, here's what coming out of people. Evil. The theme is the wickedness of man. How were they in the days of Noah? It's wickedness. John Davies in his commentary says, As the fallen human race multiplied and expanded, so did evil. The imaginations of the human heart became so wicked that God had to judge them, and he did so with the great flood. The thoughts of man were continually evil. The heart of the problem is the problem of man's heart. You realize that. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful and wicked. Paul said, inside me, that is my flesh, my inside dwells no good thing. I say, as we've all gone like sheep, gone astray. David said, none righteous, no, not one. What is God's response to all of this? Well, I call it the pain in the plan. We see the pain in verse 6. I think, yeah, the pain in verse 6. The Lord was sorry. That he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The word sorry means regretted. Now, you know, he's using human terms here. God's not like us that goes, you know, if I'd have known this was going to happen, I wouldn't have done that. He knew everything. I mean, it's not, that's not the way it is. He's putting human terms so we can grasp, his, in a sense, his emotion. His emotion is, this is not good. I'm very sorry. In fact, it says, the Lord was sorry and made man. He was grieved in his heart. That means pain. By the way, sin always causes grief, always causes pain. In fact, sin causes God grief. When we sin, he's not happy about it. He goes, man, I wish wish you hadn't done that. But he's got a plan. Verse 7. Here's the plan. The Lord said, here's what I'm going to do then. 
I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry, I'm regretting, I have made them. Now, this is the plan that God is sovereign and do what he wants. This didn't catch him by surprise, by the way. God's not sitting there going, oh, now what am I going to do? He says, I will remove all living people, animals, birds, creeping things. I'm going to take them off the face of the earth. The things that fly, the things that crawl, things that eat, things that walk. I'm going to get them. I'm going to get them. Henry Morris said this. The sin disease that had begun with Adam and Eve came to maturity in the godless civilization that it developed. Only a global bath of water from the windows of heaven could purge and clean the earth. That's how Henry Morris describes it in his book, his commentary on the book of Genesis. God's response is judgment. Sin always has to be dealt with. But you know what? God's response is not only judgment. God's response is grace. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word favor in the Hebrew is the word that we sometimes translate grace. It's, it's that idea. And just remember this, that grace is always unmerited. I want you to understand that in all the people, when God picked out Noah and said, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, God didn't go, let me see, who's the best one? There's the best one. That's the one that's trying the best. He deserves to get to be with me. That's not grace. It wasn't because Noah was the best. We're going to see how he is described. In fact, if you look, oh, verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in this time, and walked with God. He's a great man, but he didn't deserve to live. He didn't deserve to be with God. None of us in this room deserve to be with God. There's some great people in this room, but let me tell you what, we're not really great. We don't deserve it. We can't say, God ought to let me go to heaven because of what I've done. God says nobody deserves it. That's why it's always grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Don't look at Noah and say what a great man he was. That's why God saved him. No, God saved him because God saved him. And God saved you because God saved you. That's why. We don't deserve to be saved. We never could. And never will be able to do anything to merit God's salvation for us. It's by grace we have been saved through faith. It's the gift of God. I, I, you've heard me say this before. I think it's a great, it's a great little thing. It's a, it's Dennis the Menace. It's a cartoon. Dennis and Joey are leaving Ms. Wilson's house, the Wilson's house, and they got cookies, two cookies. Each one of them got a cookie in each hand. And Dennis says to Joey. Mrs. Wilson gives us a cookie because she's nice, not because we're nice. <laughs> God gives us salvation, not because we deserve it, but because he's nice. He's a great God. In the midst of a fallen world in which God says, I'm not going to put up with this, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Next time we're going to see Noah, a little bit details about him. Well, it's a difficult passage. Who are the sons of God and the daughters of men? Is it unbelievers and believers? Is it polygamy? Is it angels? Is it humans? What's the problem? How do you get the offspring of giants? Was God upset? How does it work? It's a hard one. You think about it. You study it yourself. You see how I take it. We see that the God saw that man's wickedness was bad. Then we saw his pain and his plan. And the plan was judgment, but Noah found grace. Let me give you some applications. Here's the first one. Be willing to dig the scripture. I mean, you got to dig it. We find that sometimes there are hard passages, and this is a hard one. 
over in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, we're, we're doing hard passages on Wednesday night. And we're getting into James 2 and Acts 2.38 and the passage over in 1 Corinthians where it talks about baptism for the dead. And we get there are a lot of places in the Bible you go, that's a hard passage. Yeah, it is. But you've got to study it. See, his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And when you look at a passage like this, we could say, I don't get it. And God would say, I know, you don't. You don't get it. You don't get it. And you know, there's things people say, well, I want to figure this out. And we, God may say, I didn't, I didn't fix it where you could figure it out. Because, see, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts and my ways above yours. There are going to be a lot of things since he's the infinite God and we're the finite people that we are not going to grasp and understand. He has revealed to us a lot of things in his word and we can grasp them and understand them. But there are some things you will never understand. Be willing to dig the scripture, to see what it says, to put it together, observe it, interpret, apply it historically, literally, grammatically. Dig the scripture. Set aside time to study the Bible yourself. I think it's vital. Number two, realize the wickedness of mankind. If all sinned and come short of the glory of God, there's none righteous, no, not one. What is the response? It's always judgment and grace. There's got to be judgment. There's got to be discipline. There's got to be uh, the dealing. There's got to be the dealing with sin. Always. Wages of sin is what? It's death. Got to be. But there's always the grace of God. God in His grace has made the provision to save us all. Third, thank God for His grace to us. In Jesus Christ. It's by grace we are saved through faith. Not of ourselves. Not what we do. It's the gift of God. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ. I love Jonathan Edwards. There are a lot of things Jonathan Edwards wrote that I don't agree with. But Jonathan Edwards said this. He says, God gave grace. Even in our unworthiness, instead of us deserving the gift, we deserve judgment. And His grace was given to us while we were enemies. And He was given without us, without ever expecting to be repaid. See, God didn't save you. Because you were going to serve him. You understand that? God didn't say, I'll save you if you serve me. He said, I'm going to save you. I want you to serve me. You know, I, the passage in Luke, you remember the one where it was that parable and it talked about the servant out in the field and if he did out in the field and you bring him in and he said, when your servant comes in, are you going to feed him or are you going to tell him to feed you and do all the stuff he's supposed to do? And then when you get to the very end, bottom line is when we've done all that God wants us to do, all we can just say is we're just servants. We're only doing what we're supposed to do anyway. Wow. Thank God for his grace. That even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gives us eternal life. Well, it's a hard passage. Let's pray, and we'll open up for any questions or comments or what. Heavenly Father, what a great night. Thank you, Lord, as we think about the passage. And Lord, I pray that we'll all be willing to dig the Scripture. We know that there's a lot of hard places and a lot of things that maybe don't flow in the way that we think they should, or even we don't exactly have answers. And, and Lord, we study the Scripture, put it together, and say this is the best that we can see that it means. And Lord, thank you that you're an infinite God who's given us your Word. We're finite people who have the privilege of studying your Word. Lord, thank you that uh, even though our th- our thoughts are not your thoughts and that kind of thing. And you, as far as the heavens are above the earth, your thoughts and, and ways are above us. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and given us your word. Lord, we realize that we're all sinners and come short of the glory of God. And your response is judgment and grace. Thank you that you're going to, as a, as a God of, of character and righteousness, that you can't overlook sin, but a God of love and grace, you, you save us. Lord, thank you for the grace you have given to us 
in Jesus Christ. May we never take it for granted. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, questions, comments, anything? I know it's a hard passage, and I, I spent a lot of time on that, but I, I, I wanted to. <laughs> I wanted you to see it. It's kind of hard. I just wanted you to see it. Okay, questions, comments. Hazel, did you have something first? I know that you had... Oh, okay. Way to go, Freddie. Way to go. Okay, yeah, Tim. Oh, that's a good thought. I never even thought of that. You hear what Tim said. It was a great question, a great point. He said, since since Satan probably figured that here God is going to send a redeemer to redeem mankind, could it have been Satan's plan to mix humans and angels together so that God then might be forced to bring a redeemer that would not only redeem humans but redeem angels? Because we know that God's plan was never to save those fallen angels. I have never thought of that, and maybe that was a part of it. We could write that one down somewhere. That's a good one. But uh, we don't know. But it, 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 could it have been that Satan would be thinking, okay, if there's half people, half angels, somehow he's going to have to pardon people and angels, and so maybe there will be a provision for fallen angels. Because we know there is no provision for all fallen angels. So that's a good thought. I have never thought of it that way. That's good. I don't know, but that's good. Yeah, yeah Kelly. Right. One married that one, one married that one. And in resurrection, whose whose bride will be you got it wrong, in the resurrection of all life angels. Mm-hmm. Neither marrying nor giving in marriage. Right. Right. Not not involved in relationships. Right. But these angels aren't. Right. They were. Right. So how does it square? I'm sorry. How does it square? That's what you're saying. Yeah. Well, I don't know. But let me let me say this. It, we know that angels Angels don't reproduce in the sense of let's get a couple of angels together and get a couple more angels. Because when God made angels, he made all the angels at one time. And when the angels fell, it was a, it, we call that elect angels and, and fallen angels. And that was a point in time. And so all the good angels are always going to be the good angels and all the bad angels are always going to be the bad angels. And there's not going to be more angels come along for those decisions to be made. So the only thing I can think, Kelly, is since angels don't reproduce in that sense, Satan used them, probably taking somehow form of people to come do this, to have the sexual relations, since angels can do something like that. best we can say is that was a, a planned purpose, apart from what they normally do, to pollute the human race. That's about the only thing you can say. Because we know that angels don't marry or give in marriage. They don't reproduce. There's only one set number of angels. And that's why most people would say, well, it can't be number three because angels don't have sex. We, we, don't, we don't know what they do. We, something happened there. And if it's sons of God, which is the only term in the whole Old Testament, sons of God always is referring to angels, this would be the only place it wouldn't be. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. That's why it makes it such a hard passage. Yes. Okay, you in Sodom and Gomorrah part. They didn't. The homosexuality, yeah. yeah. And, and so that would be strange flesh. Yeah. Jesus said, That which is flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. Mm-hmm. The spirit cannot have sexual relations 
well, unless that angel, which can take different forms, and there are angels that look like human beings. In fact, when you, if you look at, at Abraham, when he was setting out his tent, three people arrived, and two of them were angels, and one of them was the Son of God himself, and they look like human beings. So there are things that, that happen. And, and at Sodom and Gomorrah, it wasn't angels that refused those women. It was homosexual men who wanted to bring those people out. So it's... Huh? Well, it doesn't really say that they were demon-possessed. It says that they were going after strange flesh, which is homosexuality. Okay, that, that's true. It, you, that's exactly right. In the New Testament, the term sons of God and children of God... Oh, okay. All right. Gotcha. Uh, the daughters of men, the sons of God, got to looking up on loose women. Okay. And they wanted, uh, and they took them as wives. Okay. That's view number one. You're, okay. Okay, that, that's a good view. That's a view number one. That is, sons of God were were believers and daughters of men were loose women or women who weren't believers. And that's view number one. That's a view that a lot of people hold to. I don't hold to that one, but a lot of people do. So, uh, yeah, that that's a good view. Yeah, just... Huh? Do what? Yeah, well, yeah, and... and uh, yeah. Okay, who... who did you have a... Pat, did you have a hand? Okay. The best we could, Pat asked, did this only, it seemed like this only happened one time before the flood. This is what it appears to me that it only happened this one time. That's why those particular angels are kept locked in that place until the final judgment. That's what it seems to me that there was this, an event that happened that was so terrible in a sense that these particular angels are locked up. Because see, most demons, most fallen angels are not locked up right now. They, they go through this world. So that, the best I can tell, Pat, that was the only time that ever happened. Well, that that term can just mean a big person, too. You know, Goliath was nine feet nine inches tall. And sometimes they would say Nephilim there, but they were just, they were meaning big, big. But this was something unique because it keeps calling them men of renown. And this word Nephilim there has an idea of something that's really big. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So, yes. I, I don't know anything about it. It did. We, we don't even know what their offspring were like. We They were just mighty men is what it said. Doesn't tell us. Doesn't tell us. We don't know. They all died in the flood. Okay. They all died in the flood. I wish I hadn't brought this passage up. No, I couldn't help it. That's Genesis 6. Yeah. In, in Numbers, it refers, in my Bible, there's a cross-reference, uh, some, the sons of Anak or something. <laughs> they were giants. Yeah. Like 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 Noah's, I mean like uh, uh, Goliath's family. They were five boys. And they, no, it's not. It's a word, but it's not. It's not used in the same way. They're not called men of renown, and they're not called sons of God. There. Yeah. 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 
it, that word implies. Jerry's got a great point there. When I said uh, said they took the daughters of men, that's not the word to marry. That's not the word to take a wife like I'm going to marry her. It's the word to grab, to to grasp, to take hold of. So it it almost indicates, and that's why a lot of people go back to Jude and Second Peter to tie this together. It seems to indicate that there's something more there than just two people falling in love and getting married. You know what I'm saying? It looks like they take them by force. That's what it looks like. Well, that's all we're going to say about that. Is that okay about that? Is there any other questions other than the Nephilim, the sons of God, the daughters of men, anything? Any other questions about anything else? Okay, I promise you, guess what? We get to know it next week. We get to what? Well, not next week because we have the fun time here and everything, but it'll be a couple of weeks. We'll get into Noah and see what he does. Here, Heavenly Father, thank you for a great night. Thank you for these great truths and help us, Lord, to be able to understand it. Thank you, Lord, that there are different views and that each of us can have different views on how we look at a passage, especially when there's no particular way to know exactly how it fits. So thank you, Lord, that we can do that and thank you for your love and grace to us. But Lord, thank you that in the midst of all the sin and the fallenness and everything of the human race you have provided a savior and for all of us who have sinned and come short of your glory you have a savior for us and all who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life thank you lord we ask this in jesus name amen